today is from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7 through 17. This is the word of God. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to them, said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will he have no mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning once again. Uh, today we're continuing our series in the book of Zechariah. And the first thing I want you to notice from our passage is that this particular word that comes to uh, Zechariah it actually comes three months after uh, the first word uh, came to him. So the first word was what we covered last Sunday. This is the second word. And remember, the first word was a word of repentance, right? Calling God's people back to God to return to me, God said. Return to me, and I will return to you. Uh, the second word is a different kind of word because it came in the form of eight separate visions that was revealed to Zechariah in all the same night. Now, we didn't get to read all the eight visions, but we read the first one. And so today we're just going to look at the first one that was just read for us. In this first vision, there are four features we see. There's a man on a horse. There are myrtle trees. There's a glen or a ravine. And then there are other horses seen behind the first rider. Okay, try to picture that in your heads. And you can find scholars speculating on whether any significance should be attached to the presence of myrtle trees or a ravine, or whether the different colors of the horse really matter. Uh, now, I personally <clears throat> do not think we ought to spend much time debating those finer points because the passage itself actually doesn't make much uh, of any of those things a big deal. Right? <clears throat> What's clear is that Zechariah himself is not sure of what to make of this imagery. And so he asks, what, what are these? What are these things, my Lord? And the angel says, I will show you what they are. And what the angel reveals is that the vision's meaning is found in the actual drama that unfolds 
right? Not in the distinct features themselves, right? It's a drama that unfolds that matter. And the unfolding drama can basically be broken down in three parts, okay? The first part is the horseman giving a report. The second part is the angel offering an anguished plea. And the third part is, the best part, it's God's comforting reply. Now, for the message today, I'm going to just skim quickly over the first two components there at the horseman's report and the angel's anguished plea. I'll just kind of let you know it's there and explain a little bit. Uh, I wanted to spend most of our time this morning in reflecting upon God's comforting words, okay? Because today's words are meant to offer hope and comfort to a people who have been feeling a bit broken and defeated. So before we go to those words of comfort, let's first understand, though, who these horsemen were and what they reported, okay? So uh, verse 10, it says, so the man was standing, or the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Okay, so question, who are these horsemen? Answer, they're basically God's patrol squad, right? That's, that's, a, that's sort of what, what you should be envisioning, right? And their job was to survey the earth and report back to God on the current state of the world. So what do you think that fact is supposed to teach us about God? I thought of it this way. I think this should help you, right? Normally, when one country wants to survey another country, how do they go about doing that? Well, they normally do it secretly, right? Discreetly, right? They may plant human spies, or they may engage in cyber attacks, which is common in our day. And they do so to uncover the country's secrets. Or... Let's say if they sense weakness in a given country, they may feel emboldened right, to openly fly a giant white spy balloon <laughs> across the foreign land. But one thing they would never do is that they would never openly send horsemen to trot across the land because that would provoke war. <laughs> that would be a, just a direct provocation. So Think about this, the fact that God is able to patrol the whole earth without any resistance represents God's power over all of the nations without any exception, right? There is no land that is truly foreign to God. Why? Because he owns it all. It's all his. Think about it. In Zechariah's day, it was Persia who was the dominant earthly power. They're the ones who took down Babylon. But what this vision reveals is that the power of even the great Persia is no match against God because, see, God's horsemen, they're able to openly ride through even the land of Persia like it's nothing. What's the next thing we see from this vision, verse 11? And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. I was confused about this part. This is not, not easy to interpret. And so I had to 
really do some thinking and reading and reflecting upon this. See, when I first read this, it, it sounded like the earth being at rest was supposed to be a good and positive thing. And I will say that it is possible to interpret it that way. I mean, there, there's a way to still uh, accept it as a good thing and, and make sense of the entire passage. But I think the more plausible interpretation is to understand the expression of the earth remains at rest as something negative. Right? It's not meant to be a good thing. And it's, it's mainly because of, of what verse 15 says later on. All right, here, here's what one commentator writes, which I think is uh, pretty persuasive. Is in light of verse 15, okay, just kind of scroll down to verse 15 if you can. God says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, all right? So the nations being at ease, somehow it provokes anger in God, and so that's a kind of a weird uh, juxtaposition, shall we say, right? And so the commentator says, in light of what verse 15 says, it is fairly evident that the earth's peace, right, this being at, remaining at rest or whatever, or at ease, this idea of that uh, the earth is at peace was the result of injustice, right, or inhumanity. And there's evidence to back that up, you know, that the same Hebrew word that's used here is also used in other places like Jeremiah and Ezekiel to refer to the sins of Moab or the sins of Samaria. Or you can think of it as a, a peace resulting from an oppressive regime, let's say like China or North Korea, you know? So there's a kind of peace, right, that kind of seemed like it's, everything's all well and good, but it's it's result of this superpower oppressing its people, right? That, that kind of peace. It's not true peace. Now, I think that interpretation makes the most sense because as soon as the angel of the Lord hears this, the angel expresses deep anguish, saying, O Lord of hosts, right? Remember that? Expression, Yehovah Sabaoth, O Lord Almighty, the Lord of, what was it? Heaven's armies. How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? In other words, Lord, your people are continuing to get pummeled by the people around them. When will you offer them some relief? That's one way to understand it, at least. See, last Sunday, we said that one of the reasons why God's people were not able to build God's temple when they're expected to is because the surrounding peoples who were far more powerful than them were hindering their work, right? They were overpowered by them. And look, it's, it's true that the Persian king, King Cyrus, was a better king than, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, because he does allow them to return home. But the fact of the matter is that these Jewish folks, they were still under the oppressive shadow of Persia. See, It was still an oppressive power. So as I said, there's a kind of peace that can be established through brute strength and threat of punishment, and then there's a kind of peace that can be established through a loving king who generally cares for his people. And I'm telling you, the kind of peace the horsemen witness in the earth during this time is that of the former, 
It's a peace resulting from brute strength or threat of punishment, or an oppressive regime. So after the angel offers this anguished plea for mercy, it's good news, right? God offers words of comfort and hope. And there are at least three things God says that are meant to comfort us and give us hope here. So let me unpack those three things. First, God says, I am jealous for Jerusalem. And this needs some explanation because, you know, when we think of jealousy, it's something we try to avoid because we associate it with, you know, negative, sinful feelings, right? For instance, here's a common definition of jealousy that you should all be familiar with. Jealousy is a feeling of resentment against someone because of that person's success or advantages. It is characterized by or proceeds from suspicious fears or envious resentment. (laughs) Is that a good thing to have? No. And so if that's how we're defining jealousy, then it's true that we should do our best to avoid harboring such feelings that are sinful. These are sinful feelings, okay? But when God speaks of jealousy, he's not describing a sinful desire. Here are some other definitions that you can find in the dictionary that that better better describe the heart of God. I like this one. It says, being vigilant in maintaining or guarding something, okay? And the proper context, that's nothing sinful about that. It could be a good thing, right? Or being fiercely protective of one's rights or possessions, right? I mean, that's a justice matter, right? This is about, this is about justice, right? Preserving or, or protecting someone's rights or possessions. That's a good thing in, in the proper context, right? In other words, when God says he is jealous for us, he's saying that he loves us deeply as a husband ought to love his bride, right? That kind of sort of desire to guard and protect. <clears throat> that's a good desire, and you can all relate to that, can't you? I mean, I believe that every spouse should practice such jealousy in their marriage. I mean, to be jealous for your spouse means that you deeply care about the marriage and that you never want it to fall apart. I was reminded of the the various couples I married over the years since 2009, since I moved here, and I think I'm about at... 46 or 7, some, somewhere <clears throat> along uh, that line. 40, I think 47 is coming up soon, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I think next year I'm going to just quietly celebrate the 50th wedding that I officiate. Okay, I'll do it quietly. Um, <clears throat> but it's amazing when I see these couples, right? Like I said, I, I mentioned this to you before. Every marriage is hard, okay? But... Um, as far as I know, all of those marriages are still intact, right? Every marriage is hard, but all those marriages are still intact. But do you know when marriages get in trouble? It's, it's when just one spouse, just one spouse, it just takes one, uh, when they stop caring about the marriage, right? It just takes one spouse to get bored or to mentally check out from the relationship, It doesn't matter if the other spouse is jealous for the other person and wants to save the marriage, right? 
Because if just one spouse doesn't care, then it's just a matter of time until the marriage falls apart. It's like, what? You, you, you met someone at work and you're flirting with her now? It's like, what do, why do you think I would care, right? If one spouse had that attitude, right? It's over. What, you, you want to have an open marriage now? Where we can spend, you know, time with whoever we want to? Okay, let's do it. You know, it's just one spouse has that mentality. It's, it's over. But that's apathy, right? That, that, is, that is carelessness. That, that is not love. And so the fact that God is jealous means that God, he never mentally checks out on us, right? He never grows apathetic. He never grows bored of the relationship. He always cares deeply, even when our hearts grow cold, he, he waits for us patiently to return. And when we do, he returns back to us without fail. In fact, as you know, Jesus is described in the Bible as the bridegroom who was willing to die for his bride. Is he not? So brothers, sisters, be encouraged and be comforted by his love for you this morning. Every person around you, including your, own very, including your very own spouse who promised to love you, right, for better, for worse, in sickness or in health, till death do us part, or even after making those vows, your husband, your wife will disappoint you at times. That is what we do as people. But the point is God never will. He will never disappoint because he will always be jealous for you. Secondly, God says, I am angry with the nations. Now, how is God's anger toward the nations supposed to give us any comfort? Huh? Well, it's because his anger has to do with him not allowing injustice or ungodliness to prevail in the end. Let me read verse 15 once again and unpack this idea a little more for us because, again, part of that verse can be confusing. Verse 15 says in its entirety, And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. See, earlier in verse 11, the language that was used was the, the earth remains at rest, Right? Here, the expression uses the nations are at ease. Okay, the language is slightly different, but the concept's basically the same. Okay? Here in this passage, verse 15, rather, uh, the same Hebrew word is used in 2 Kings 19, which says, because you have raged against me and your arrogance, that, that word is translated there as arrogance, but it means it, it's the same word, ease. Right? Because you have raged against me and your ease has come into my ears. So there's a negative thing, right? So there's, again, biblical evidence for understanding that word ease or rest to be a negative thing, right? And in that, in that context there, in 2 Kings, the nation of Assyria, they, they became successful in taking over Libya and then Egypt, and their arrogance led them to presume, oh, then, then we can surely take Jerusalem, and guess what? That arrogance or that ease, it aroused God's anger. Right? That, that's what that passage tells us. And so in our passage today, 
God is basically saying that, look, these ungodly nations, which I have used to discipline my people, that's true, right? I've used Babylon, I've used Persia, I've used these other powerful nations like Assyria to discipline my people. They, they have overplayed their hand here, right? They have been mistaken, right? They, they thought that I was rewarding them somehow for their good, but no, that was not at all the case. And their arrogance and presumption has led to further disaster. They have become at ease, like prideful, arrogant, cocky. That's that's sort of the general message here. And this is a very important point to remember, right? Just because God uses the ungodly to do his bidding at times, it does not mean, brothers, sisters, that he approves of their sin, right? He will judge unbelievers for their sins as well, because all people, right, from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be held accountable by God in the end. Don't forget that. That's important to remember. That's an important point to remember. I mean, you think about the American church. Sometimes it breaks my heart when I think about the American church. I mean, I love our country, right? I I love just the revival that this country has experienced, but then you know, the church can become corrupt as well. The church can kind of be diseased. Don't you think that God, I mean, I would say even the past few years, it was a time of disciplining his church, right? Pruning his people. And you don't think God used ungodly folks? You don't think God used unbelievers to do his bidding at times? Of course he has. If not the past few years, he has at some point. God can do that. But it doesn't mean that he approves of of what unbelievers do just because he uses them for his purpose. No, they will be judged for their sins as well. Why does this matter? Well, let me read what one commentator writes. I think you'll find this encouraging. What does this tell you in your own struggle when you look upon the unbelieving world, you know, people indulging in sin, mocking your piety? Sometimes God's people are even cruelly persecuted by those who flaunt their wickedness, how are we to think about these things? And what does God say? I am jealous for my people, but angry with those that feel at ease or secure. We are to realize what the writer of Psalm 73 said in his frustration about the happiness of the wicked. It was oppressive to me, he said, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The point is, sin does not win in the end. God's justice will prevail. God says, vengeance is mine. God will right all wrongs. So practically, here's the value. We don't need to fret. We don't need to be anxious so much. You know, we don't need to lose sleep over trying to accomplish this perfect justice in our lifetimes. You can, of course, I encourage all of you to pursue justice in your own way, right? Nothing wrong with that. But know that it is only God who is able to accomplish his perfect justice according to his good timing. And so we are to place our hope in the Lord. He will accomplish what he promised to do. Amen? Thirdly, God says, The measuring line shall be stretched out over 
Jerusalem. What, what do you think this is supposed to mean? I'm sure those of you who are in the construction business, you know exactly what this means, right? I'm, I'm sure you've seen this on different building sites before, but if you're observant enough, you'll be able to see these measuring lines run along the project site, right, to ensure perhaps that the foundation is properly set. You know, maybe uh, lines are drawn <clears throat> to ensure that the materials are laid down accurately, because if they're not, what happens? it would compromise the integrity of the building. And so this vision given to Zechariah is offering us the assurance that God is the divine architect and he is committed to rebuilding his broken people. And guess what? His work is not done haphazardly. There are measuring lines, right? He's thoughtful. He's meticulous and how he builds. Don't, don't you want your builder to be meticulous, to be exact? This is a picture we're given about God. Brothers and sisters, do you feel like your life has been broken and shattered in some way? Maybe your health has suffered over the past few years. Maybe a relationship that you once treasured is now lost and, and you've been deeply broken inside. Whatever it may be, God is calling you to trust in his work of meticulously okay, rebuilding your broken lives. You can trust him okay, because he's not haphazard. He's not careless. He's meticulous. He's thoughtful. He knows what he's doing. You should all be familiar with 1 Peter chapter 2 because our ministry is actually... Uh, largely based upon this passage. First Peter chapter two, verse five says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. I love the imagery. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, the temple that we are called to build is no longer a temple that is made up of brick, wood, or stone. Rather, it's a temple made up of people. It says living stones. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. And though God is calling us to rebuild his temple, we are being told, actually, that ultimately, he is the architect. And not only that, he is the primary builder of this house, right? his spiritual house. It says you are being built up, you see. You, living stones, you are being built up. Who's building it? He's building it. He's the ultimate builder. He's the one who thoughtfully shapes us according to his wisdom and meticulously places us where we belong in his church. Isn't that a comforting thought? Verse six is also worth mentioning. It says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, right? Sound familiar? <laughs> Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, right? This is part of God's vision for us as his people as well. It's, it's saying that we're not just being built on some random, untested foundation, but we're rather being built on none other than Jesus Christ himself, right? The cornerstone, right? The precious 
one, especially the one chosen by God, right, that cornerstone. And as long as we place our trust in him, you know, of course, we're all going to experience troubles in this life, but in the end, the promise is we will not be put to shame. Again, words of comfort and hope. But this is God, brothers and sisters, giving us the hope we need to endure through the present trials we may be called to face now. I hope you can also appreciate what God says in our passage in verse 17 today. It says, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, this idea of, of God blessing the Jews first and choosing Jerusalem first before every other nation, it may bother some people, but keep in mind that this is not promoting some kind of ethnocentricity. Okay? Rather, we're to understand that this is how God intended his message of grace, right, the gospel, to go forth into the world. It was always meant for the Jews first and then to go to the Gentiles. That's been the pattern. That, that's what we see all throughout Scripture. For example, in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation, Abraham, and I will bless you. So the, the blessing comes to him first. I will make your name great so that, what? You will be a blessing to the other nations. That, that's, that's the pattern. So you, the blessing comes to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles become blessed after the fact. That's how the gospel flows. It's not a bad thing. That's just God's design, and we, we're all recipients of that blessing. Anyone here a Jew? No, we're all Gentiles. And therefore, we receive the blessings that came through the Jews first, reached us miraculously. Who are we? Why, why us? Why me? I came, I came from an obscure place in the world. Right? Even like 20 years ago, no one knew where South Korea was. So, so for some reason, like everyone knows now, I don't know what's going on, but. But this pattern of blessing, it's supposed to sort of cycle through us as well, right? Because as, as you should all be aware, that the principle of God blessing us so that we can be a blessing to others, it's not just relegated to the Jews, right? It's relegated to all people who receive God's blessing. God blesses his people so that we, as his people, can be a blessing unto all. Let me put it a little differently, okay? We can put it this way. We, we've been given the gospel message, in other words, so that we can share that same gospel message, that message of grace with others in our schools, in our neighborhoods, with the homeless we meet on the streets, with the families we interact with in our youth sports leagues, with the people we meet on the opposite side of our country, Colville, you guys did great, I hear. I'm encouraged by the news I'm getting. Keep up the good work. That, that's God's design. He blesses so that we can be in turn a blessing to others. He is the architect. He is the builder. This is all part of his wisdom and his design. And I hope you're all able to realize sooner than later that the best way to be at peace and to be content in the Lord is by trusting that his design for you is good and it's wise. 
Please do not try to rebuild your lives based on your own clever design. Don't think that you know better than God. Most of you know I, I, I don't know actually most of you, but <clears throat> actually I spoke, I spoke at a college retreat. Did you know that? <laughs> I spoke at a college retreat this past Monday, Tuesday. Did you know that? Uh, sorry I didn't post anything really on social media, or maybe I, I actually did, you know. Do you guys care what I post? Okay, you guys, <laughs> did you guys see anything? <laughs> Um, I was at a college retreat, and first, my, my first impression was, wow, I, I feel so old now because, uh, you know, Stella just went to college, and so basically I'm like their dad figure. <clears throat> I felt old. I think it make, makes it harder for me to connect in some way, that gener- generational gap. But um, I also, <clears throat> I quickly, I learned, it was, it was pretty easy for me to tell, actually, and um, I, I think as you all get older and wiser, uh, you'll be able to have an eye for this as well, but... It, it's, it was very easy for me to see who was truly committed to constructing their lives upon God's design for their lives, like who was truly humble and, and had this submissive spirit, you know, this humble spirit, versus those who were there simply to receive whatever blessing they could from the retreat, okay? Whatever emotional high they can get from the retreat, so that they could just pursue their own selfish ambitions and their own selfish design for life, right? So that they kind of just feel empowered to go and you know, conquer the world according to their own vision of life. You, you can see a stark difference. And I'm telling you, if, if that's how you choose to live your lives, brothers and sisters, it would be as if you're building your life upon sinking sand Right? Not, not upon the solid rock of Christ. So my hope and prayer for us is, of course, that we would all be committed to building our lives upon Christ, who is our cornerstone, and that we would truly trust in him as our architect and as our master builder. Okay? In case you missed the news, uh, this is my way of including some application, Okay? Um, no one asked me to share this stuff. I'm just kind of, I think this, this is appropriate, uh, appropriate response to this kind of message. But uh, we are starting up our CGs uh, really soon. Okay, the first, second week of September, we should have our CGs up and running. But please, if you haven't done so yet, please consider signing up for one. Uh, some of you who know me well, you know that my tendency is to want to keep my life very private, right? I can be a very private person because I'm comfortable being private. But you know what? I've learned a long time ago that that is not part of God's design for anybody, to be overly private. For the most part, we're called to make our lives an open book for others. And yes, of course, when you make your life an open book, then you will get hurt, Right? People will take advantage of you sometimes, but you know what? Even that's part of God's design. You're supposed to learn from that hurt. You're supposed to grow from that hurt. Right? You're not supposed to like, create this, this, this shell and hide in your shell all the time. That's not God's design. And so I've learned that I need to, as much as I prefer, is it okay for me to say this as a pastor? I prefer not to lead a CG. Right? Oops, did I say that? I prefer not to lead anything, actually, 
Why am I standing up? I, I, don't, I don't want to do this, right? Why am I even doing this? I do it because this is God's design for me, and this is what, uh, what I'm called to do. And I, of course, I, I do my best to do it joyfully and, and uh, you know, have a commitment, but it's not easy. Right? Naturally, again, I prefer to just kind of do my own thing. Right? So I challenge all of you to ask the question, what is God's design for your life? Okay? And don't be like subjective about it. Just look, look at the word of God and see those areas in which you're sinning and rebelling, okay? Lastly, uh, you may have heard that our children ministry is in need of volunteers. Uh, our sister Hannah didn't, again, tell me to share this. I'm doing this voluntarily. But if you never served in the church before, maybe this is the time for you to volunteer and experience firsthand what it means to be a, a living sacrifice, okay? Or what it means... When God says, it is better to give rather than to receive, okay? Or what it feel like, feels like to have kids drool over you, okay? <laughs> uh, and be humbled by that all. All right, so uh, I, I encourage all of you to consider opportunities to, to serve and, and be a blessing to the community. All right, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for you, the, the words of comfort and hope that you've spoken to us today, your your promise to return to those who return to you have always been good and true, and you have repeatedly offered us such kindness as well. For that, we're thankful. Um, not only that, though, you, you have promised to restore us as your people by building us into a holy temple in order that we may be a beacon of light for the nations. You've blessed us so we can be a blessing to others. So help us, Lord, to respond to you with love and gratitude. Uh, and with a heart to serve others around us. We commit our lives to you once again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.